1: So I think we'll get started now, um, and people can jump into uh, Zoom when, uh, when they want to as, as we're underway. So thank you all for uh, coming to our virtual uh, panel, a uh, virtual roundtable on the legacy of Václav Havel. I am David Danaher, professor of Slavic studies at UW-Madison, and I will be moderating this event. Um, um, and uh, in particular, we thank uh, two of our participants in this roundtable, Yirji Pshiban and Barbara Day, who are who are in Europe. Although I, I'm not sure uh, Britain counts as, as Europe anymore. Uh, although uh, since uh, Yirji is in is in is in Britain, but um, it's very late there, and so we we're really grateful that you are you are joining us, uh, especially for this 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 uh, this time. Um, And uh, also, I'd like to thank at the beginning to thank our Center for Russia, East Europe and Central Asia, KRIKA, for sponsoring the event. And especially thank you to Jennifer Tischler for supporting it and to Courtney Johnson for helping us and others for helping set up all of these uh, details. There's a lot of work that goes into putting something like this together. So we picked a very special day to talk about Vaclav Havel and his legacy, October 28th, for uh, many of you probably already know, is a day on which Czechs and presumably Slovaks also commemorate the founding of the first Czechoslovak Republic in 1918. So it's a national holiday, a statni svatek in the Czech context uh, for the Den Zniku samostatného Czeskoslovenskeho status. So happy national holiday. Unfortunately, it's not a national holiday in the US. Um, In addition to this, we uh, ought to point out that October 2021 marks what would have been Havel's 85th birthday, and in December of this year, um, 10 years will have passed since his death in 2011, all of which means that it's a great time to think more deeply about Havel's intellectual contributions and ultimately also his intellectual legacy. And I think most, or if not all, participants on this panel would agree that this intellectual legacy is going to be a vibrant one for many decades to come. And if we had to pick one uh, figure from the Czechoslovak country, culture of descent who will still be read in 20 or 30 years, it is Vaclav Havel. So we're going to really interrogate why that might be the case today. Um, there's another reason we're holding this round table at this moment. And uh, it's that it serves as a pre-launch for a forthcoming volume that is titled Václav Havel's Meanings, um, his keywords, their context and legacy. And we just received confirmation that it will be published in uh, spring of 2022, probably late spring, by Carolinum Press based in Prague and uh, with the University of Chicago Press uh, distribution in North America. So this volume is edited by myself and Kieran Williams. It's actually a terrific volume and I encourage you to check it out when it comes. You'll kind of get a sense of what's in it. But you can see here the table of contents. We have uh, an editor's preface and a foreword by uh, one of our roundtable participants, Yerzi uh, Pshiban, at the Garden Party of Moths and Butterflies. And if you know Havel's plays, there are references to them there. A foreword to Havel's keywords and imaginaries. And uh, we uh, basically have picked uh, each, each, each one keyword or key concept to, to look at. And so you see the list here. Um, one thing I want to mention is that two people who contributed wonderful, wonderful essays to this volume are not uh, present on this roundtable. So I wanted to give a shout out to Irena Vainkova, who wrote a beautiful piece on the key concept of domov, uh, obviously key for Havel, but also in Czech culture at large. It's a word that occurs in the national anthem. Um, and Jirži uh, Suk dealt with uh, the word prison or viezeni in Czech. And he was using some uh, recently released uh, prison diaries by Vaclav Havel as the basis for his contribution. Um, I collaborated on translations of those two pieces with uh, with the authors and with Kieran into into English and it was a real a real honor to be able to do so even though it took a fair amount of work. Translation is, is hard. So um, we might, before we uh, turn over uh, the floor to individuals to talk about their contributions, we might briefly define what we mean by keyword or key concept. So a keyword is one that occupies a central position in one work or maybe the entire oeuvre of a given thinker or writer because it exhibits special organizational and semantic potential for that work or for uh, the oeuvre as a whole, the, the thinker's whole system of thought. And scholars have emphasized that uh, the role that keywords play in philosophical thinking. And I will just uh, introduce one quote here from Mark Edmondson uh, in his book, Literature Against Philosophy. He writes It is not surprising that to every philosopher of consequence, we attach a word list, a central vocabulary. We think of the words and phrases they have invented or those that they have bent themselves over for long periods minutely shaping and polishing like expert gem cutters." So I think this is a terrific, beautiful, moving description, and it captures uh, a Havel ri- uh, quite well as a writer. And um, uh, keywords in Havel's thought are really not that difficult to identify. They are running motifs in his writing that cut across the multiplicity of genres that he wrote in and time periods. and. I mean specifically across this fateful year of 1989, so pre and post 1989. Uh, Key words in Havel or key concepts serve as intellectual touchstones around which many of his larger ideas take shape. And we might also mention that Havel wrote originally in Czech and at least some of these key words um, are problematic when it comes to translating into other languages. So some contributions in our volume, and we'll hear a little bit about that today, um, are uh, deal with the issue of how, how do we translate these words, and is there something that is, that is lost in translation necessarily. So today's plan is the following. I will give each roundtable participant a chance to talk uh, briefly about the keyword that they have analyzed for the volume, and why we might consider this a keyword in Havel's thinking, and also um, how it relates to his intellectual legacy. And we'll follow the table of contents of the volume um, in, in, for this. Um, and uh, after this initial period, we'll have uh, a chance to engage in discussion of Havel and his legacy. And we will encourage questions from the audience. There is a Q&A button. You can type your question in. Um, but let's please save the questions for after we already have uh, given a chance for our roundtable participants to, to say their, their bit. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll have a lively discussion at the end of of, uh, the initial period. Okay, so um, I am actually up first because uh, in the table of contents, as you can see, I have the uh, first keyword, and I will be very brief here. Um, This is a a word that is strongly associated with Havel, uh, the word that is often translated into English as appeal, and there are really two different forms that Havel uses, visva and appel. although visva is the, uh, the one he uses most often. So I'll tease this with a quote from Havel from uh, his philosophical letters from prison called Letters to Olga, his first wife. He writes, for me, the notion of some complete and finite knowledge that explains everything and raises no further questions is clearly related to the notion of an end to the spirit, to life, to time, to being. Anything meaningful that has ever been said in this matter, including every religious gospel, is on the contrary remarkable for its dramatic openness its incompleteness. It is not a confirmation so much as a challenge and Here he uses the word visva or an appeal appel um, so we can already see that there 's difficulties in translating this word visva is appeal or visva is challenge opportunity there 's all sorts of ways of translating this into English. Um, And for those who know Havel's writings, Appeal is a central part of his dramatic style as an absurdist playwright. So he wrote in the context of Theatre of the Appeal, Devadlo Apelu, and we have Barbara Day coming up soon to talk about Havel and theatre. And uh, what I would argue is that uh, the Appeal component of Havel's thinking and writing is not limited to its uh, dramatic, his dramatic incarnation, right? It's a principal strategy in other literary genres, as well as in his political engagements. So that is the way I approach this word, uh, this concept in the piece I wrote. Um, the other thing that I do here is I look at translation equivalents for Visva, and a shout out to the Czech National Corpus for helping out with this. We see a little screenshot of the, the headline of the Czech National Corpus, a beautiful graphic there. And uh, the Czech national corpus gives us a way to investigate the baseline meaning of words in uh, of, of a word in, in the Czech language. And so I looked at that baseline meaning for Vizva and then I compared that to Havel's usage in his writings. Um, and um, I'll just uh, briefly talk about uh, some aspect of my conclusion here in, 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 my, in my chapter. Um, I argue that Havel tends to view the world as an aesthetic object of sorts, one that has a strong appeal component. He reads the world around him in the same way that he urges an audience to interpret one of his appellative plays, that is a play focused on the appeal that provokes us to some kind of thought, makes us uncomfortable or disturbs us and gets us thinking about what's happening on stage in relation to what's happening in our lives. Like an aestheticized object, the world is replete with signs that we should understand as prompts for serious reflection and sometimes even urgent action. And our response to these signs imbues us, imbues our lives with a kind of transcendent and perhaps even cathartic meaning. So appeal is definitely a central concept, kind of sets us up for the uh, key concepts that follow, follow in the volume. And one thing we should emphasize is That all of these key concepts in Havel are interwoven with each other. And for those of us uh, who have already seen the final volume, I think this is something that really, really jumps out when we read uh, the chapters uh, one after the other, that we have a complex kind of roadmap for understanding uh, maybe modern human identity would be the way to put it. And I think that will be a central part of Havel's ongoing legacy. So I'll turn uh, the the floor over now to Kieran Williams, who will talk about uh, the the, the big concept of truth.
2: Uh, Thank you, David, and and thank you and Krika again for uh, organizing this event and hosting it. Really appreciate it. And I'd also like to thank here all our contributors, everyone who's contributed a chapter to this book. Uh, It's actually been a pleasure to work with you, which is a rare thing to say when dealing with an academic collective. So sometimes the payoffs of drawing on multiple talents aren't worth the headaches of coordination. That was not the case here. Everyone has been a fantastic colleague. Um, and I think the, uh, the end results will be clear. Um, I would like to abuse my position as a co-editor and plug a couple of other things that are not part of our book, but are I believe relevant to the topic of this event, which is thinking about Havel's enduring legacy um, and relevance. And how, in some respects, even as more time has passed since his death, there are certain things about his work that acquire new meaning and new uh, poignancy. Uh, So I want to just quickly uh, screen share if this will work. Something I wrote four years ago, if this is, uh, is this coming through okay? I've learned with Zoom not to assume the screen sharing is working. Um, This was something I wrote four years ago. This is on Medium, on the blog site Medium. So it's in the public domain. And it's my reflections uh, on Havel's last play, Leaving, which when it was first published in 2007, I thought was something of a mess. Um, And I didn't really get it. And it just seemed to be a pastiche and a self-parody. And then a few years later, it started to take on an entirely new meaning for me as a fantastic, timely depiction of political toxic narcissism. And then it acquired even more potency in the last year or so when you also realize it's a depiction of what happens when someone refuses to leave office and can't come to terms with losing office. Uh, So that's something I just wrote to give us an appreciation of how something can be a sleeper in Havel's work, uh, something that may have been overlooked or discounted in the past. Today, 10 years later, 15 years later, takes on special meaning. Uh, the other thing I wrote, and again I hope this is coming through, is this is from a year ago, and this is my reflections on a work that I always held in high esteem from the very first reading, his letters to Olga, those prison letters from 79 to 83, and how every time I come back to letters to Olga, depending on what's going on in my life, what's going on in the world, I read them differently, it yields up a whole other dimension, and in this case a year ago it was thinking about how reading Havel's prison letters take on a different meaning when we're dealing with a pandemic. Uh, When he's describing a life locked up and we're living life locked down. Um, And then again, you you experience these these letters, these incredibly thoughtful, um, moving letters in an entirely different perspective yourself as the reader now. Uh, His experiences suddenly seem more familiar and less alien than they might've been the first time around you read them. So I just wanted to to share those as a couple of things you can read right away and not have to wait till the spring of 2022. Uh, so quickly on, on the concept of truth, this is obviously one of the concepts that people probably most directly associate with Havel, if they know anything about him, the idea of living in truth, and the very fact that he was willing to go to prison, not just once, but several times, is itself an illustration of his I would say, his primary understanding of truth. There are several aspects to this that I explore in my chapter, but the main understanding of what truth is for Havel is something that you personally avouch. Um, and we can find examples of this scattered throughout his writings from the mid 1960s all the way to the very end, I think, of his, of his life. Uh, but one of the best expressions I wanna share is a quotation. Uh, when he was accepting an honorary degree from a non-Wisconsin Midwestern university in the year 2000. Uh, Nothing's perfect. Um, And here he sets out, I think, very nicely in in one paragraph what truth means for him. Uh, So he says, putting it very simply and succinctly, truth for me is information, but at the same time is something more. Of course, it is information which, like all other kinds of information, is clearly shown or confirmed or verified or is simply convincing in the context of a certain system of coordinates or paradigms. But at the same time, it is information for which a human being avouches their entire existence, their reputation, their honor, their name. Uh, and he gives the example of Tomas Masaryk, the first president of the uh, Czechoslovak Republic founded in 1918 on this day. Masaryk's stance in exposing the forged uh, Kralov Dvorsky and Zelenohorsky manuscripts uh, shows that really standing for truth means not looking at whether or not it benefits a person, whether they are esteemed or cursed by the public, whether their struggle ends in success or in derision and finally in oblivion, what today we would call canceling. Uh, so for him, truth means taking a position on something regardless of the what will the consequences for you personally. Um, So examples of these people throughout history that Hava would say are vouchers of truth the maximum of vouchers of people who are willing to pay the ultimate price of giving up their lives for it. Uh, So a Jesus, Socrates, a Jan Hus, a Giordano Bruno. Um, It could be people like himself who are willing to go to prison and suffer the privations of captivity for it. Um, He distinguishes them from fanatics. Uh, This is a a tricky and difficult and important distinction that he has to draw between people who are willing to suffer for their truth versus people who are willing to inflict suffering for their truth. He says anyone who is willing to impose pain on others in the pursuit of their truth forfeits the right to claim truth. So that would be the the line he has to draw. Um, And it also connects, and this will start to lead us to some of the other uh, things we're going to hear about today, that avouching means um, being true to your identity uh, as an act of responsibility, uh, an act of continuity. And I'll just finish with a second quotation from one of those prison letters, letter 109 to Olga, where he says, if I know what I have done and why, what I do and why, if I truly vouch for it, and if I declare myself for it, about albeit perhaps in secret, that means I continually relate to something stable, which I gain in my unstable surroundings, and thereby myself become relatively stable, something graspable, continual and integrated. I am in short, someone, that is someone identical with myself. By the fact that today I vouch for what I did yesterday, But I vouch here for what I did elsewhere. I acquire not only my identity, but through it, I'm also located in space and time. If, on the contrary, I lose my identity, space and time must perforce also collapse around me." And I'll just end by pointing out that that is exactly what many of Havel's plays, from garden party at the beginning to leaving at the end, all depict a a, usually an irresponsible male uh, who does not avouch his truth. And as a result, the world uh, collapses around him. And we see that chaos uh, and absence of truth and a vouching represented on the stage. So with that, I'll lead into Barbara Day (coughs) talking about theater. Thank you.
3: So if I then take over, I would like to thank David and Kieran very much for having invited me to take part in this project. It's a great honor and I've enjoyed it tremendously. Now I'm talking about Duval Theater. And I want to begin with something that probably everyone here knows already. The, The theater is tremendously important in this country. It goes back a long way the historical reasons connected with the national awakening and its substitute for politics in defining Czech identity. And then there's a tradition of very close rapport between the audience and the stage, that particularly in times of oppression, such as the German occupation or under communism, there's been an understanding of the meaning that can underlie words and images. And it was largely this quality that during communism attracted numbers of very talented people who like Havel were unable to follow careers in business or journalism, in politics or in academia and so, turn to culture simply to fulfill their energy and their mental capacity. And so, probably in a different society, Havel may well not have become a playwright. He may have moved into one of the other careers that was open to him. But in fact, he did admit that there were aspects of the theater world that he didn't like, that he didn't enjoy, but he realized that this was where he could speak and be understood and where he could work with people he respected. So I've actually in my paper introduced four of the people he worked with and from whom he learned what theater meant for him. And the first one is Jan Verik from the Liberated Theatre, who gave Havel his first job in the theatre and who helped to shape Havel's understanding of the theatre as a social and intellectual space, a place where people could meet in an arena of freedom. And I think this also helped to shape Havel's belief in freedom, not in something that is an entitlement, but something that you create, something that you actually carry out by thinking and acting freely. At Verix theater, Havel met the director, Alfred Raddock, who barely survived the Holocaust. And it was through him that Havel perceived theater as a ritual. Next came Ivan Viscocil, the founder of the Theatre on the Balustrade. And it was Viscocil who taught Havel that theatre was essentially a relationship between the actor and the audience, that it could take place, it didn't have to take place in a theatre, in a building, it could take place anywhere. And Ivan Viscotchil was the founder of the Theatre on the Balustrade. He was followed by Jan Grossman. And the years that Havel and Grossman worked together were incredibly productive from 1962 to 1968. And in this time, Havel says they weren't necessarily the perfect working partnership, but he understood from Grossman the quality of theater, the analysis, how how Grossman analyzed the contemporary world and exposed its its illusions, its absurdity. And this was something that Havel then took with him into the next period of his working life, which was, of course, as a dissident and a person outside the established society. And I'm going to just finished with a paragraph from the end of my paper. For Havel, theater had to belong to a place, a time, and a people that is relevance and topicality. At the same time, it had to distance itself. It had to bring people together, community, collective spirit, it had to be useful It was in fact an applied art. It had to be properly prepared, intellectually, emotionally, and practically. It had to be truthful and it had to be free. Even when conceived on a large scale, theatre had to be intimate and familiar. It had to be open-ended and interactive offering questions rather than answers. It had to have meaning, meaning that could be grasped both intellectually and emotionally. Above all, it had to be a positive force for change. And I will just end at that point, thank you.
1: I think we're back to uh, Kieran with this, this tricky word of ochnisko.
2: Thank you, yeah, and it, it actually follows perfectly from where Barbara just left off because the kind of theater that Havel liked, the, as, as Barbara said, he, there was a lot of theater he didn't like, but the kinds of theater he did like are an example of this strange word that I chose for my other chapter, ohonisko, one that is unlike truth, very hard to translate, uh, and there is no single word for it in English, um, but it relates to Havel's understanding of change and how change is set in motion. Uh, Because for him, it's ultimately all the words are fine, but they're without value unless they do lead to deeds. Uh, And the question then is, how do those deeds get set in motion? So there has to be action, and then action itself needs a location. Uh, There has to be a place in which that action takes place, just as it takes place on the stage of a theater. Uh, So when Havelin is writing, is referring to places where change Either is set in motion or is anticipated, where we, in effect, we get a vernissage, a sort of preview of the changes that are coming uh, for society as a whole. He uses this word ohnisco. Um, this literally means the heart of a fire. It's from ohen, the word for fire. So the is the sort of the heart of the fire if you're staring into the fireplace and you're looking at the heart of it. But it means more figuratively, other things like a hot spot, a hot bed. Uh, a flashpoint, uh, the center of a storm, the epicenter of an earthquake, uh, the outbreak of a disease. So, that's a word I'm suddenly seeing a lot in the Czech press in the last 18 months. Um, it could be the focal point of a camera. So, it has all these figurative meanings as well as the literal meaning. But when Havel uses it, he specifically means it in this sense of a hot spot or a hotbed, uh, a place of almost conspiratorial activity. And it emerges usually from some creative collaboration. Um, It can often be very contentious. Uh, The the collaborators, for example, that Barbara mentioned uh, in his theater work were sometimes people with whom he butted heads and and sometimes had some very intense disagreements. So an ogenisko is not always necessarily a, a friendly, warm, cozy place. It can be a place in terms of actually quite considerable conflicts of ideas. But out of that comes some very meaningful work, uh, or at least gives us a preview of the things that are coming down the road for the country as a whole. Uh, The main thing is, however, that it sort of emerges quite spontaneously. You can't deliberately create one or bring it about. It has to emerge organically from the interaction of the people in that location. So it could happen in some theaters, but it won't be guaranteed in every theater. Um, it could be around the editorial room of a journal or a newspaper. Um, it could be at his country house in, at Hradecek. Um, it could be a, the network of dissidents uh, supporting each other in, in very dark times. And I wanna share a, a, a quotation of, this is I think a very nice example of what this kind of thing is that he has in mind and why it's such an inspiration. This is uh, from his answer in April 1986 to a questionnaire distributed by somebody that many people here probably knew, uh, Gordon Skilling. Um, and it's a, in response to some of the questions that Skilling had sent around. Havel said of Charter 77 um, it could speak that the Charter is a sort of small center, and he uses Ohanisco here, a, a small center of relative independence, a center from which, of course, independence continually radiates well beyond its boundaries. It's hard to know what effect this radiating has or will have on the irradiated area, what kind of ripening or fermenting it will assist, even if it is just as a catalyst, what share this radiating will have in eventual social movement, should any arise. Uh, The recent Polish developments are a classic example of this. For a long time, it was seemed that the Workers' Defense Committee, CORE, and its activists could not in any way visibly budge the general social situation or influence it. And then suddenly, when there occurred another outbreak of societal disa- dissatisfaction, the work of CORE was reevaluated virtually overnight in an entirely unexpected way. It is hard to imagine that the multimillion-strong solidarity could have arisen, this is referring to 1980, without CORE's preparatory, analytical, and conceptual work. I think one could for that three years and say exactly the same thing about the Velvet Revolution, that the Velvet Revolution, like Solidarity, to some extent required the preparatory work of an extremely small but determined network of people without sinking, of course, into conspiracy theories. Um, So it's not, as I said, conspiracy thinking, it's much more what Havel as president uh, later articulated, which is basically the butterfly effect. uh, The idea that great changes can come from very small movements. Um, I'll just end by saying that this also raises questions uh, that I can't answer about what Havel's eventual idea of existential revolution should look like uh, as part of the kind of change that he hoped would eventually emerge from these little ohoniska, uh dotted around society. Uh, he obviously clearly felt that things have to change. Uh, things cannot go on the way they are. The planet cannot sustain the way we have been living. And he was one of the first heads of state to use his pulpit to raise the alarm about climate change. Uh, but I think he himself could never really articulate what the change had to look like in order to fulfill his sense that a, an ex- existential revolution is required. So I'll stop there. Thank you.
1: I think we're now up with uh, power, one of the really key words in Havel's thinking. And Delia Popescu,
4: thank you, David, and um, thank you, Krika, and my fellow panelists. This is uh, wonderful. I wanted to apologize in advance for the possibility of enacting some theater of the absurd right behind me because my ca- my cat is climbing up the walls. So uh, yeah, I'm afraid you might have uh, me reading, you know, talking about Havel while absurd. These things are happening behind me. Um, Yeah, I lucked out when I um, landed the concept of power, right, which is a key concept in Havel. For one, because of the obvious, right, he he names his famous, his most famous essay, Power of the Powerless. And and secondly, because it's a synthetic concept, right, and I think that was very challenging for me in approaching this because I found myself rehashing every word that Havel ever wrote to put it together, right, in this grand design that he calls power, Um, so luckily, on this panel, my fellow panelists will talk will touch a lot on a lot of the concepts that come together right under the, the umbrella of the notion of power. So what I'll do is for a couple of minutes, I'll just highlight what I found interesting or what I wanted to focus on um, in my contribution. One thing that was always fascinating to me in Havel was the transition between powerlessness and power, right? And I thought that really the heart and soul of Havel's discussion on power has to do with what do we do when we found ourselves disempowered what does powerlessness look like right what does it amount to right and the answer to that question is complex and and havel reflects on the role of ideology ideological language um, conformity right so' a sort of automatic behavior consumerism at the same time right so he unites um, traditional vehicles of manipulation with what are new modern vehicles of manipulation, like consumerism, and, and things like existential fear, right? And he talks a lot about what existential fear does to us and how it renders us powerless, right? And throughout all this, the important Havelian uh, connection, I think is between language the self and powerlessness, right? All these three things need to be traced together to come to what how we rescue ourselves essentially from the situation, right? Um, and and good, you know, good news, uh, Havel is relatively optimistic that we can rescue ourselves. Now most of us are the greengrocer, and most of us can rescue ourselves from this situation. but it's a long path, right? It's a rather complex philosophical path to get there, right? So, um, again, importantly, Havel emphasizes language as as this mechanism of of controlling the sense of self, right? Um, And language is a a way of brutalizing the self, right? I I find that he he thinks of ideological language as a way of brutalizing our sense of self. And and he has a rather, uh, maybe, a complicated way of putting this, right? I'm going to read a quote. Um, The essence of it, right, of this ideological speech, the essence of it is that certain established ideological patterns are deformed and fetishized, and thus become an immobile system of intellectual and phraseological schemata, which, when applied to different kinds of reality, seem at first to have achieved admirably a heightened ideological view of that reality, when in fact they have, without our noticing it, separated thought from its immediate contact with reality. So there's this double disconnect, right? Between self and reality. And that creates, that paves the way to our powerlessness. And if we fall into this, if we fall into this um, double disconnect, that's essentially what um, undercuts and severs our connection with the possibility of agency and action, right? And I think Havel specifically, he's at pains to explain this, right? That he uses an entire essay, the power of the powerless to explain how this happens, what happens to us, to ourselves, to our friends, to our collective, to everybody who's around us, and right, how it affects our entire environment. And he talks um, a lot about the environment of power, right, and how, what that looks like for us. So um, his plays, I think, I always read his plays to be essentially, uh, um, right, the actual uh, um, extension of his explanation, right, so these plays are supposed to give us an example of how this works in practice, right, and he wants us to take note of the unsettling effect. Of this uh, dynamic that happens in society to render us powerless, right? So, characters in his plays appear trapped in this tragic, tra- comical cycle of powerlessness. That's how I read Havel, right? And interestingly, almost all of his plays end with a reset, a sort of repetition, right? You You are left with the beginning of the same cycle, right? So, there's a particular type of powerlessness in his plays, right? And his intention there, I think, is very demonstrative. He wants us to witness the powerlessness of these characters, identify with that, and in that way reflect on what's happening to us now. right? Um, so uh, to identify with Van and Gross is to see the world from below, right? and shake away what he calls a, a certain illusions and mystifications that we hold, the sort of false consciousness that draws us into not doing anything. right? Um, so, you know, when he says things that are, by at this point are considered famous, right, he says things like there are times when we must sink to the bottom of our misery to understand truth, just as we must descend to the bottom of a well to see the stars in broad daylight. And I think in his plays, that's what he's getting us to do, to identify with his characters, even if we're not in that situation, to be at the bottom of that well, right. He's appealing to us, as David Danaher so. Um, you know, nicely put in his in his work, right? He emphasizes this idea of appeal through emotional connections, right? So Havel concludes the story of the greengrocer on a rather Socratic note, if you will, right? When the greengrocer becomes aware of himself and his powerlessness and the the the, comp- the toll that compliance takes on him, that's the first step to empowerment right? Realizing your powerlessness. So power in, in, through this lens is um, interchange. Empowerment is interchange grounded in truth and responsibility. And they both start with self-awareness, right? This is my bottom line of, of this, right? That there's a certain understanding of power as interchange, but that has to go all the way down to self-awareness. And that's where it starts, right? Um, another very important contribution for Havel is, of course, this idea of post-totalitarian power, right? And I'm not going to go a lot into this discussion. It's a um, it's very well, I think very well articulated by Havel himself, right? In the power of the powerless, uh, he, he talks about the fact that there's something new that we're looking at a new phenomenon, right? Post totalitarianism uh, puts together the most unfortunate uh, aspects of authoritarianism and modernity. And it gives us the synthetic package, right? This the dialect- dialectical package that results in something um, terrible, and at the same time, harder to understand because it's harder, um, and it's harder to overcome because of that, because it's harder to understand, right? It's a combination of lies, fear, consumerism, nagging existential dread, right? all buttressed by these constructions that we have throughout the modern world. And, and in other, in other uh, parts of my writing, I, I look at this as a sort of, I call it the Dorian Gray image that Havel constructs, right of the, um, it's a motif, right? Post-totalitarianism is the grotesque illustration of the Western exterior, right? And, and Havel, Um, I'm going to conclude with this observation. Havel is putting us on guard, right? That we still haven't found a solid foundation for replacing the politics of apparatus, as Havel calls it, right? And we haven't still, it's not clear that we found, A power that comes from real human needs and human creativity integrity decency right solidarity, which is what he would like to see right. So he tells us that power can be transformed and it is transformative right and he wants to recognize us, he wants to recognize that our job is not over right. Um, we have much to learn about power and powerlessness, even in societies that are presumed to be the most emancipated societies, right? So I think to a large extent, this is what we take today from, from Havel, the fact that the work of found, finding empowerment is not over. Right? And, and I'll stop there, thank
1: you. Thank you, Delia. Um, Barbara Falk is up with responsibility and co-responsibility.
0: Um, can you all hear me? <laughs> Good. Okay, here we go. I was just saying that I'm such a Havel nerd that I'm sitting here getting shivers up my spine about some of the things you're saying. And this is just the loveliest community. And, um, you know, I think in a lot of uh, academic and intellectual universes, people tend to stand on each other's faces. And I think in this community, we really stand in each other's shoulders. And I um, just want to thank you all for that. Um, I'm also really struck by the fact that as a group of scholars, we really come at the study of havel from a very very interdisciplinary spaces you know literature, theater, politics, law, uh, history, philosophy. and i think um, the fact that 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 havel reaches across into so many of our universes uh, speaks very powerfully powerfully to all of us and um and on that note, I shall start. Um, uh myself and my co-author, Daniela Bouvier-Vilenta, who is not here, uh, wrote on responsibility. I'm not a native speaker, so here we go. Um, and um, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, what we looked at. We looked at both the concepts of responsibility and co-responsibility, because different Czech words are used, and we teased out the meeting. Uh, We also made an effort to really situate Havel's discussion of responsibility in a larger philosophical 20th century discussion about about responsibility, and uh, in particular, I would say responsibility for the environment and the planet. So I would echo Kieran's comments earlier. He's really one of the first um, political figures to use both the power of the pen, and also the power of of his office, uh, to talk about that. And I notice that uh, we're mentioning that literally on the eve of the next uh, COP conference in in Glasgow. Um, And then, of course, we look uh, at not only just what he was writing in terms of the essays, the feuilleton, and the plays, but the stuff that was written before 1989, and of course, the stuff that was written after 1989. Um, Just a really quick overview. Um, I wanted I wanna sort of give a sense that although Havel is not a professional philosopher, he really did engage with a lot of deep philosophical trends when it comes to this this concept, Um, really locates responsibility as critical to human identity. And I think also to human authenticity and action. Um, And I just list here uh, four thinkers from which he both drew from, and I would say also, um, connected with very personally. Uh, I have no evidence whatsoever um, that he read Hans Jonas's work on intergenerational and environmental responsibility, but was in the ether at the same time he was writing on responsibility. And I think some of those th- same things uh, exist. Uh, Ricour has two views of, of responsibility. One of those views has to do with kind of a, a, a legalistic uh, responsibility you know, to be a a parent and provide your children with the necessities of life that meet by a legalistic view. And then a secondary view would be just the responsibility that is in you by the very fibers of your being. And one would say that that's a kind of parenting, a parental responsibility too. So sometimes it can be both. Um, Obviously, um, deeply resonating uh, with Jan Patoczka's work, um, Ideas of Care for the Soul, Solidarity of the Shaken, um, a person on our panel that can probably draw those connections much better than I can is uh, is Aspen Brinton. And, of course, the notion, um, really, I think, stretching back to, to, to Max Weber, the idea of the ethic of responsibility, um, and you know, in contradistinction to any kind of uh, uh, utilitarian uh, ethic. Uh, at the same time, I wanted to make the point that Havel's work has also been influential on scholars today and continues to be write exactly on not just the concepts of truth and power, but also on uh, responsibility. And again, I list uh, three thinkers here, Elstein, Matushtek, and Tucker. And I'll just, in the interest of time, I'm not going to go into that. This is an advertisement for the chapter, as opposed to all of the details of the chapter itself. Um, I make an argument, and I know that David and Dahlia and Kieran have he- heard me on this before, that there is kind of a, a holy trinity if you will, in Havel, and I was happy to come after truth and power because I would argue that the third part of that trinity, the third leg of the triangle, is in fact responsibility. We actually did a little bit of um, you know data analysis and keyword searching to see how much the words appear in both the English translated canon and the Czech, in the Czech canon, the Czech oeuvre. and you know the numbers are high on the responsibility side. So we're kind of making the arithmetic case for how it is that responsibility is important. And particularly in his, um, in his uh, political essays written during the normalization era, this is a constant and I would say a persistent theme. And here he is a call, calling, appealing, if you will, I suppose, to political leaders um, to take on responsibility, which involves a kind of truth and also involves not only just the truth and the action of leaders, but for those who aren't leaders, to speak truth to power, and that is also part of our personal responsibility. You see this in, uh, you know, the moment in *The Power of the Powerless*, where you know something in the mind of the green grocer snaps. Uh, one can actually suggest that that is the moment of the taking on of the mantle of responsibility. And I would say, running through a sort of a larger discussion. Um, Not only in the Havelian canon, but I would say the larger oeuvre of dissent in Central and Eastern Europe is the notion of taking on responsibility. Although it may be difficult and it may put you at some level of personal risk, that is a form of um, authenticity and it's also a form of very necessary political action. Of course, it can look different from person to person depending on uh, where we are in life and, and what we are able to do. Uh, with respect to uh, the evolution of, of Havel's views after after 1989, you see that responsibility gets in inextricably linked, I would argue, with concepts of freedom and democracy. Uh, so a very a positive as opposed to a negative uh, view of freedom using uh, Isaiah Berlin's terminology. Uh, and democracy, again, a very thick notion of responsibility in terms of um, the, the, the requirements upon a citizen, um, and not just to think of democracy as kind of a routinized Schumpeterian exchange of competitive elites, but thinking of it as a much uh, deeper, a deeper system. And again, I'm, I'm sure that when we hear um, Aspen talk about civil society, we'll get a bit of this as well. Um, struck by a, a quote we pulled out of the 1994 New Year's address that in fact, democracy is not just built on trust, but responsibility. I've really reflected on this a lot during the pandemic At the beginning of the pandemic, I used to think that this was a large global exercise in social trust and I was feeling very optimistic. Now I'm more likely to think that it's an exercise in social idiocy, but it could be that my cynicism is just getting to me. Um, I also think that there was a sense of responsibility, not just to the future in the intergenerational justice sense for the planet and the environment, but also uh, importantly for coming to terms with the past, Um, the communist past, uh, the Holocaust, and how understanding uh, there were levels of complicity and responsibility that, that ran through all of us. There's that wonderful line of hearkening uh, back to the power of the powerless about the lie running through each of us. You know, we, we confirm the system and we are the system. Um, and that doesn't matter whether or not the system is, you know, post-totalitarian normalization era Czechoslovakia, or it was, you know, the United States today, or you know Central Europe uh, in the years to come. You know it could be any one of those any one of those locations. You know while he was president, he faced a lot of big global events. You know the departure of Soviet troops from the country, um, the Velvet Divorce, um, the wars of the Yugoslav succession, um, his own commitment, which he did couch controversially in terms of responsibility support for the United States invasion of Iraq. So. We can see there that you know just because you take on the mantle of responsibility doesn't mean in you know ret- in retrospect or in hindsight that you necessarily get it right. Um, his writings on the European Union were very much uh, deeply interwoven and 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 about the importance of of uh, responsibility. There's some wonderful uh, stuff that we quote from, which talks specifically to the dangerousness. Of particularism and nationalism. And honestly, it sounds like he could have been writing about, you know, the European People's Party or some of the more populist, um, illiberal nationalist parties of Central Europe, uh, as if it were yesterday, and it was stuff that was written in the early 90s. Um, And of course, uh, responsibility in a globalizing world. Um, Just want to touch briefly on this notion of co-responsibility. Very important that we make the distinction between co-responsibility and collective responsibility. The notion of collective responsibility um, was something that he shied away from. This is part of the kind of the old conceptual lexicon of the, you know, the turgid language of Marxism-Leninism, where this idea of the collective was something that individuals disappeared into, and that responsibility was lost um, in a kind of a, a, a passive overlay where nobody was supposed to be responsible because the collective was responsible. That is exactly what he was arguing against. So instead he had this notion of shared responsibility. I mean, I almost think of it as the kind of responsibility version of the EU concept of pooled sovereignty. So pooled or shared responsibility in that sense. And that awareness, that thick awareness and sense of community and caring for the world um, this gets, you know, uh, woven through the Forum 2000 conference documents. Um, it gets woven through uh, his concepts of human rights. You know, again, rights and obligations we have by being vert, by being human, but also those mean we take on a responsibility for our action. Um, and again, uh, harkening back to environmental responsibility, um, not just intergenerational sense, but but really spoke at very key moments, you know, the two thousand and two flooding, going back to Chernobyl, this idea of uh, you know responsibility for the environment because it was part of our global commons and something that we had a shared responsibility for. And finally, we touched briefly on uh, the notion of responsibility to protect. This is kind of the emerging doctrine is too strong a term. Uh, Perhaps emerging norm is a better term uh, in law. I'm sure Gergi is going to tell me it's not even that, legally speaking. But uh, this notion that we have an obligation to protect human beings from mass atrocity, violence and genocide um, when states cannot or will not protect their own citizens or, in fact, are predatory upon uh, their citizens. And that was something that he was very keen on uh, towards the end of his life. And I guess we just want to conclude, and maybe this is a nice way of kind of bringing this, uh, my section uh, to an end, is that is that, and this goes back to, I think, Kieran's point in terms of rereading letters to Olga uh, and the fact that we we continue to think and read and reread differently and speaks to us now because it Havel matters now. Uh, we are once again living in a time of Uh, Miss and disinformation. So ideas about truth and dissent are ever more important. Uh, Excessive consumption. Um, I think the pandemic in some ways has highlighted not only inequities, but um, the ways in which those inequities are are magnified uh, when some kind of black swan event happens and there is a loss of uh, um, uh, responsibility and ability to act. I think, at the end of the day, Havel's politics, to the extent that he had a mantra, was a kind of responsible politics. I think that could also be read as both an antidote to any kind of exclusionary uh, self-other distinctions and forms of nationalism, but I would say also any kind of particularistic identities that were seen as um, divisive and and, uh, the source of enmity rather than inclusion. And um, I think I will just uh, stop it there. Again, thank the hosts. Uh, it's nice to be back at Carica. Um, David and I have reflected many times upon the fact that we had a dinner in early March of ni- of uh, 19, 2020, seems like 100 years ago, and uh, at the very beginning of the pandemic. So we've been checking in on the arguments that we made at that time. And we were really gloomy that day, but our gloominess seems to have known no bounds. But here we are together. Um, acting responsibly, uh, avouching, appealing, and uh, letting Havel bring our community together. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Barbara. And we're moving on to Aspen Brinton on civil society.
5: Um, Thank you so much, David. Thank you to Krika again. Um, It's good to be at Krika for a second time like Barbara um, and for all of my sort of fellow co-authors of this volume and this has been an amazing set of things to think about. And so I'm gonna turn um, as a political theorist, as someone who's also interested in politics, I came to Havel um, through through an interest in the cold war um, and through an interest in how um, he helps the cold war come to an end. And so when I first turned to this term, um, which I'll um, put up, uh, I, just, I just have one very simple slide. Um, This centered here. Um, uh, One very simple side about this term the um, civil society is the term in English. Um, This has become a popular term really largely in the 1990s after the end of the Cold War. Um, And as I went back into Havel's work um, to look at the original Czech and to look and dissect what was going on linguistically in the spirit of Havel's own relationship to words, as several of my colleagues have already mentioned. I, I noticed um, that in the presidential speeches, Havel as president was a kind of different version of Opchantskospolechnost of, of than was the um, version of him as a dissident before 1989. So you have really in my own account in the volume, several different Havels, right? There, there, there's different Havels at stake um, as you try to look through this word and to figure out, or the, these two words to figure out what it is about. So one bridge between Barbara and I's sort of examinations here is, is the the second part of this term, společnost. Um, so společ, um, spolu, right, um, is in common and togetherness um, in Czech. Um, and so that this in common and togetherness, um, in Havel's case, um, back to Kieran's account, right, is a kind of oniskem, right? I mean, it's a kind of place where the fire starts, right? Civil society for Havel was, small groups of people, they gather together largely illegally um, to, um, one, sort of solidify each other, um, but also then to um, confront with truth the totalitarian regime that was around them. Um, And so this um, sense of civil society is closer to civic society, but also, um, as you can tell from the slide, what I'm trying to suggest is that the The root of the word comes from citizenship um, in Czech, which it does not in English. Um, The word civil in English um, really has thousands of meanings, as I think we know, but like one of them that I think is most associated with this term is that it is public, that is out in sort of open space, um, or that it is just simply not violent, right? It's the opposite of violence, sort of civil disobedience is a nonviolent disobedience. and so that these terms, while interesting in political theory unto themselves, aren't exactly what Havel meant. Um, but one of the interesting things that happened is he started having either having this term translated or using it when he spoke in English after 1989, much more in line with the English sense. Um, and so um, the, the youth after 1989 managed to converge with the global Westernized notion of civil society. Um, as sort of NGOs, nonprofits, all of those things that are neither the government nor the economy, the third sector is another term. Um, after 1989 in presidential speeches, Havel would use the term that way, um, largely as he knew the Czech Republic was headed towards the European Union, was headed towards democracy, was headed towards human rights um, ideas, and civil society was always on that list, right? And um, there's a list of terms that go together, democracy, civil society, um, de- development, and those kinds of ideas. But really what I argue in my, um, in in my part of this volume is that the real legacy, the the more important legacy that I think is gonna last longer um, is the one that came from before 1989, from this sense of a society of citizens gathering together, um, exercising responsibility and co-responsibility, confronting power with their powerlessness through a critique of both words and images. And in the end, this kind of civil society that comes out of Havel, I think has this lasting effect because it it subverts left and right, okay um, And now how it does it like subverts the Cold War, right? He was you know point of the left and right of the Cold War. Um, but of course left and right has not ceased to be a divisive um, issue in all of our societies at the moment. And so he could critique both the East and the West at the same time through this lens of civil society, through, and say that like really neither the communist side or the capitalist Western side was getting it, right? That neither of them really kind of understood this um, in the way that they came to an understanding in these dissident enclaves. Um, And so the the other kind of main legacy, I think of why this will last longer, this notion of civil society is that it has a moral notion built into it, right? There is a notion of citizenship of a good person, of a good sort of, uh, of, a, of a civic way of acting, um, it is, as I say in the essay, it's much more Aristotelian, right, sort of how to become a good moral citizen and act in the polis, um, and that it does not take that word civil, as often is the case in English, and create a neutrality out of it, right, oh, your opinion is just as good as his opinion, and both sides were wrong, and so on and so forth, that kind of neutrality, can come into the discussion of when you use the word civil in English, we should be civil to all sides. But that's not really what Havel meant. Havel meant there was a good, (laughs) right, there is a sense of the good in the classic um, sort of sense. And really, the the third, um, the third kind of lesson, um, and it's it's not so much why it will last longer is is the relationship between global words and local words, right. Um, I think as you try to understand a figure like Havel, this is a local concept of civil society, right, Um, so that Havel's idea of what coming together in a civic space to rekindle this kind of dissidence would do um, had a location, right, like the Czech language itself has the locative case, right, which almost no other language in the world does, right, a certain set of words are about location, right, civil society in its, I think, most lasting sense will always have a location and therefore a culture and a whole kind of world hooked to it. I mean, the global version, the civil society of the Western NGOs and the rest, I think will probably in the long-term end up to be more watered down, right? I don't think it will stick as long as the local concept um, will because it doesn't have that root um, in community responsibility, the co-responsibility that Barbara was talking about, Um, and so, That's, in a sense, my own preview of of the essay. I think one of the other things I talk about in the essay is the difference between Havel the dissident and Havel the president. Um, So this is um, just a a fun image at the museum on communism, which is there in Prague, um, maybe near where Barbara lives. I think this may still be up on the wall. This is from four or five years ago with dissent spelled wrong um, at the top, but it has this wonderful picture of Havel with a beer belly and a bag of potatoes. Um, And this is not president Havel, right? This is dissident Havel. Um, And so I often show this to my students because if they've ever heard of him at all, it's the presidential Havel with the flags and the suit and everything else. And I said, no, that that this is the guy that matters more with the potatoes and the beer belly um, because really, this is the notion of kind of civic community and sort of civic citizenship and the society of citizens that, um, that he had that I think will in a sense last longer. So, um, I will uh, see the screen. All Next right,
1: person. these are hard acts to follow and I don't mean to, uh, to introduce a term that is, is less uh, optimistic and less interesting, but we do end the volume on indifference. Um, and so I'll, I won't uh, talk much about this, but just read a quote here from uh, this essay, this open letter to uh, the uh, then president of Czechoslovakia um, after uh, the 1968 Soviet invasion, Dr. Husak, Gustav Husak. And it, uh, I remember reading this uh, a long, long time ago when I first came to Havel and, and was obsessed with basically reading everything I could get my hands on. And I remember pausing over this passage and wondering what exactly he meant there. And then, of course, decades later, I returned to analyze this this keyword indifference in Czech. The word he uses most often is lhosteynost, which is considered a, a translation equivalent, a dictionary equivalent. So this is the kind of mysterious passage. He says, paradoxically, though, this indifference uh, paradoxically, though, this indifference has become an active social force. Is it not plain indifference rather than fear that brings many to the voting booth, to meetings, to membership in official organizations? Is not the political support enjoyed by the regime to a large degree simply a matter of routine, of habit, of automatism, of laziness, behind which lies nothing but total resignation. Participation in political rituals in which no one believes is pointless, but it does assure a quiet life. And would it be any less pointless not to participate? One would gain nothing and lose the quiet life in the bargain. So um, I analyzed this word, uh, looking at the Czech baseline meaning and comparing it to how Havel uses it. And there's some interesting differences here, particularly in, in in this notion that if we aren't indifferent, if we engage, if we avouch for our truths, if we uh, try to empower ourselves, if we, you know, and I could, I could mention all the key words that we've we've heard about here, um, we might get ourselves into trouble and there's something to lose, right? This quiet life that Havel talks about. So I will end on this note and and just mentioned here that I found uh, uh, from Radio Prague, this Havel's letter to Husak, still an inspiration 40 years on. Actually, Barbara Day you're 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 interviewed in this in this piece uh, later on down down below a little bit so that's a nice a nice intersection for what we're doing uh, right now so I will uh, for our last speaker we will ask Yerzy Pshiban who wrote the foreword to the volume to uh, say something about uh, uh, his the argument that he makes there
6: okay thank you very much uh, uh, for inviting me to this very special gathering and uh, I I feel really privileged to be part of this whole project and uh, to be able to meet with uh, some old friends and people I truly admire and uh, uh, experts I have the highest respect uh, uh, for and uh, I think this work has been absolutely amazing and I think uh, it shows one important aspect of Havel's legacy, that uh, we need to continue reading Havel and uh, make sure that uh, this work doesn't deteriorate into a kind of political slogan or cliches. Because just yesterday, I attended one um discussion in uh, Václav Havel library in Prague and uh, it is uh, quite disturbing to see people who would pride themselves uh, by uh, being uh, dissidents in the company of Havel and standing for the values uh, that Václav Havel stood but at the same time having deep admiration for people like Donald Trump and Stephen Bannon. And uh, you almost wonder how come uh, you uh, you speak about Havel when you admire this ultimate liar who lies several times a day, and uh, you still pretend that uh, um, uh, pravda, alaska, truth, and love will prevail over lies and uh, hate. And uh, this is this is just one uh, thing why I believe this work uh, and, and this uh, collection of uh, essays is very important. And uh, um, another um, important uh, aspect is that uh, yes. Uh, now is the time to speak about Havel because it's 10 years uh, uh, since his death and uh, it's his uh, birthday anniversary and uh, just before uh, a couple of months before he died he made a famous uh, uh, statement uh, because you all understand Czech uh, he said bude začne se to obracet k when it will be really, really bad, uh, things will start turning better, and uh, this is a rough translation because this is a colloquial blubie and and uh, uh, and we just experienced it in Czechia. Uh, My Polish and Hungarian friends are deeply envious of how did you do it? And uh, uh, that um, um, uh, democratic coalitions, this meta coalition of democratic uh, uh, parties, coalitions managed to beat uh, and remove um, uh, Andrei Babiš from his uh, prime minister's office. And to which you only uh, respond uh, by another Czech expression I won't, uh, I won't translate it, but uh, yes, it was a big, big luck indeed. And, um, but um, uh, in that, in that sense, uh, I, I almost feel like there should be another entry on hope. You yeah? hope is, uh, uh, is something which, uh, always um, is uh, profoundly reflected, and it's it's a it's a basic value. I, I specifically say not fundamental value because Howell would um, not like the expression fundamental value. His life was always informed by values and he always perceived, he imagined society as a community of values, but he would never say that values are fundamental and everything has to grow out of them because he wasn't a fundamentalist. He was... um, 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 both a realist and idealist. And I think it's beautifully reflected in all presentations and uh, uh, even in his notion of theater and appeal. Um, uh, Because uh, to him, uh, theater wasn't just uh, uh, the world of illusions but this is somewhere where truth is being shared and communicated and something which can lead into um, um, a catharsis, but also into uh, a better understanding, self-understanding and understanding of uh, our situation in the world. Uh, I must say, uh, when I listen to the audience, um, uh, um uh, on tape um, um, uh, on cassettes yeah it's uh, uh, and uh, uh, it's uh, it was like well that's that's exactly this uh, nonsensical automatic language behind which and and uh, repeat constantly repeated situations behind in which we constantly live. Yeah. Language as a ritual, and, uh, uh, and I must say that uh, it reminded me Uh, talking uh, from a personal perspective. When I was a student in um, uh, the late 80s, so the period of decadent communism, we set up um, a student uh, magazine and we wanted to run an interview with Havel to which our censor at the time the current outgoing uh rector of charles university um uh, he was saying you must be mad this is impossible and uh, a couple of months later of course we ran uh, the interview uh, with Havel and uh, Havel uh, uh, was an absolute key figure and role model for us as students. We were reading Havel then and for me it was uh, quite revealing when I learned that uh, students and young uh, people in Egypt during uh, the Arab Spring were reading The Power of the Powerless uh, as one of key texts. I believe that this text deserves to be Uh, read again and again. And uh, why? Because it shows that um, um, the world is not divided between political realists and political idealists, between optimists and pessimists. We may be skeptics, but if we have hope, um, um, things... uh, may start turning better, it's not assured, but uh, this is what uh, he would take uh, from um, philosophy and uh, um, uh, Batsav Havel's work was, all, um, was increasingly um, um uh, influenced by Jan Patočka uh, and um, I think his whole notion of dissidence was profoundly informed by Patočka's heretical essays and uh, Patochka's uh, specific emphasis on Daimonion as a language of warning, as a language of uh, uh, which uh, doesn't have a positive program but has a negative appeal don't do it this is uh, uh, this is the loss of humanity this is this is uh, where you shouldn't enter I think it's important for environmental uh, uh, in the in the in the current situation of environmental disaster Uh, which is looming. I think it's uh, very important in terms of European politics and uh, um, uh, where Europe is heading, how it's evolving, and uh, I think it's also important uh, in terms of where our communities, whether they are in Czechia, whether they are in Wales, whether they are in the United States, Uh, are going and uh, that's why Socrates is uh, as important uh, as uh, Havel and uh, his legacy, especially the dissident legacy. Thank you. And thank you very much for for this tremendous book which uh, I'm sure will be uh, appreciated by everyone who's ever had anything to do with Havel's texts, contexts, or even person. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Yirshi. And I can, I can say that uh, there are a lot of words still left to investigate if people are interested, and hope is, is on that list. So I think that's that's a, a great contribution. We do already have a couple of questions that have been sent in the Q&A, and so I'll read the, the, the first one here. Um, from Chris Harwood. Hi, Chris, how are you doing? Do you believe that this recent uh, protest movement in, in the Czech context called Milion Hvilek pro Demokracii was to a large extent inspired by Havelian ideas and ideals, and also that it uh, played a role in deposing uh, Babes in the recent, uh, recent elections? So, um, please, uh, this is not a question for me. I think it's more of a question for maybe Yitzhi first, or, or or others. Kieran is, as well, or Barbara. No, uh, uh, very briefly, because I'm sure that Barbara,
6: Kieran, and other people will uh, will have their their views. Absolutely. Million Hvilek pro-democracy was a key element in mobilizing democratic public and um, it's uh, it's the role of uh, Minaj and, of course, the inspiration by Havel and protest movement was uh, essential, uh, a key element in it. And I believe that uh, without Million like pro-democracy, democratic parties wouldn't win. Uh, I... Um, I, I want to emphasize one thing, uh, because some of my friends immediately started saying, oh, the, the result was horrible, and uh, look how much uh, um, Spolu led by ODS uh, won, and well, uh, several thousand votes. And we would be in a situation with uh, the populist prime minister supported by extremist parties. So now we have a centrist uh, right-wing government, uh, which uh, we can criticize. Isn't it a privilege?
0: I want to jump in there because my, my co-author who's not here, uh, Dashi Bouvier-Vlenta, actually wrote her master's thesis on um, Million Moments. And she absolutely made those connections to Havel. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what brought us together because I was her supervisor for her MA and then, you know, we connected it to this. So I I just wanted to uh, do that bit of a shout out to her in her absence.
3: And if I can just add something very quickly. I think one should take into account the difference between Prague and the rest of the country. The much greater awareness of Havel's legacy that there is in Prague, and less so as you go further away.
1: Okay, thank you for those responses. So, um, uh, Kieran, do you want to say anything about the Million Moments or others on the panel? Uh,
2: Yeah. No, just, uh, I agree with what everyone said. Uh, I think I remember at one point, one of the organizers of Million Hvilek had a t-shirt that said in English, have a nice day. Uh, so I think that that revealed something. Uh, and I think it's also gonna be very important for whenever the next presidential election has to take place, if it has to take place next year or certainly before it's due. Uh, I think Milian Mili and will will be very important for mobilizing people against if Babish runs again uh, for president instead. Um, I think we also have another question above uh, regarding films. Want to move yes, on. To and the I'll,
1: I'll, I'll, I'll read it. Thank you, Katka, for this question. So this is a, a wonderful film, uh, Citizen Havel, Opshan Havel. And the question is, if so, how, how well does this film, if you've seen it, uh, represent Havel's life and impact? What kind of bias does it exhibit? Would you recommend any other films? So uh, for those, it's, it's a complex film. It's not a, it's not a, uh, it's a somewhat surprising film. So who would like to uh, do an a on-the-spot improvised uh, <laughs> analysis of this film as it relates to, to Havel?
0: I don't want to touch that, but I do want to say, <laughs> because I'm of the view that none of the biographies or documentaries about Havel are complete and good in the way they should be, and maybe that's because we're Havel scholars and we're too close to it and we're too critical. I feel like we're a bunch of, like, you know, uh, war correspondents who can't appreciate a good war film. You know what I mean. So it's a similar kind of thing. I do think, however, in many ways, if if you can compare it to Leaving the film version, which Kieran said that he reevaluated, I think Leaving stands up and will continue to stand up. And maybe I had a better appreci- appreciation at the beginning of it, of it than, than you did, Kieran. But now I'm really motivated to uh, to to rewatch it. But but. My lukewarm version of the video material is, I would say, somewhat matched with my mixed um, analysis of uh, the number of biographies that, that that now exist out there. With the exception of the stuff Kieran writes, of course.
4: I have a similar view as Barbara. I, I watched it and I thought that, um, I took it to be almost a, a work of art in a sense, or the attempt of, of the producer to make a work of art rather than an actual serious attempt at um, looking at Havel and representing him truly, right? So I took it to be a collection of moments that uh, were, were meant for an artistic purpose. And, I, and I'm, since I'm not in film studies, I didn't know what to say about that, right? It starts with these images from the Spartakiad, right? So it has this, it's supposed to have this uh, absurdist context. Um, and so it does a play on, on Havel's, maybe, on Havel's interpretation of what absurdism would look like. Um, but I was not persuaded, right? I was looking for more from it. So in the end, I thought it was an an emotional response or a response of the filmmaker more than anything else, representative of Hubble.
1: Other comments on the film? If
6: if I can add, um, I want to defend the film a little bit because uh, I still uh, found it valuable. Because it captured certain zeitgeist, yeah, that uh, the spirit of times and uh, how uh, things evolved. And uh, uh, it's, uh, uh, and and, you know, this uh, genre has a tradition, yeah, that uh, you collect material, documentary material uh, uh, through time and then publish it. as a as a film, um, uh, what is interesting is that now there uh, there is a fiction film called Havel, which it's and it's interesting that it uh, uh, it takes a key moment in Havel's life as his uh, his momentary lapse uh, when he was. Um, um, uh, um, uh, uh, when he was arrested uh, after Charter 77. So, um, and something which younger generation found extremely valuable, like, well, out of the weakness, uh, strength grows. Some uh, older generation and some dissidents even wrote an open letter of protesting against the false picture of Marcel Havel in the media, which uh, I found absolutely ridiculous so uh, i think we're getting um, uh, with uh, with the elapse of time i think uh, it's interesting what kieran said about odcházení about uh, the leaving because i um, yeah I really didn't like the film, <laughs> but I now after uh, after what you said, I'm I'm gonna watch it tomorrow. So it's uh, uh, because today we are celebrating Czechoslovakia, uh, and it's interesting that uh, Slovak president was speaking live on Czech TV. So which is which is also uh, uh, something, yeah. yeah.
1: And we should mention that the uh, contribution to the volume on the word prison by Yeshi Suk deals with this, this incident uh, really beautifully. Uh, so something to look forward to if you're interested in, in what happened and also kind of contextualizing it in the, in, in the, in the context of Havel's prison experience and his, his life as a whole, how important that episode was for, for Havel, uh, at least in, in uh, the argument that uh, Professor Suk advances there. Um, uh, uh, I, we have two minutes left. I have like seven questions written down that, that, that relate, but I'm not sure that we, uh, oh we have one more. Would it be fair to say that Havel's concept, this Kieran, this is for you, of oknisko reflects a positive view of the potential of intellectual and cultural elites, and that therefore a certain kind of elitism was not foreign to him. I think this also relates to Citizen Havel, the film. So uh, Kieran, do you want to respond to that?
2: Uh, I guess, yeah, I guess in, in practice, that's how it might turn out. Although I think he would want to say um, that it could involve anybody who's involved in, in some kind of activity that's creative. I mean, maybe that, I don't know if being creative is intrinsically elitist. Um, if you could be involved, I think for him in some ways, you know, an ideal artist would be someone who's actually quite ordinary um, but is able to tap into something bigger in a, in a very deep way. And I think Rabal was his model of that kind of artist. I mean, Bahumel Hrabal was in some ways an everyman, uh, at least in his persona, even though he was also very highly educated and worldly and all that. But he had the outward persona, at least of being just this ordinary Czech guy with a lot of cats and beer and, and all that, uh, but who had this remarkable gift for, um, understanding the world around him. So I I, I can see how yeah it could come across as elitist, but I think it could be open to uh, any anyone who's creative, let's put it that way.
1: All right. Well I think we're gonna to have to stop our session here. And once again, thank you to all the participants. Uh, Chris adds perhaps the plastic people were everyman artists and I you know we'd agree with that. Um, so uh, thank you to the participants, thank you for those who joined us for this, for this session, and uh, thanks again to Krika for organizing it. Have a very good evening or night, depending on where you are, and, uh, and uh, let everyone watch uh, leaving the movie and Citizen Hovel tomorrow after the, after the ho- national holiday is over. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> thank you very much. Bye-bye.
6: Thank you all. Thanks.